Uh, ushers are going to give a handout here that uh, is a handout that I hope you can use as a reference in regards to today's sermon. And it is uh, by Steve Cuss from Managing Leadership Anxiety and talks about 32 common sources of chronic anxiety. And I think that reference guide would be a blessing to you. We are in uh, the third week of the series on roots and fruit, where we are studying the fruit of the Spirit. The big idea here is that healthy roots will produce healthy fruit. And I have been given the passage to talk about peace, and I'm going to be basing on a Philippians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. So if you can um, go there, that would be great. And I'm entitling the message, Peace in My Anxious Heart. Peace in My Anxious Heart. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point too much because I think we all realize that we are living in a society that lacks peace. The opposite of peace is anxiety. We talk about it a lot here in the ministry, uh, and we will continue to talk about it because most 90% of Americans believe we're in a mental health crisis, an anxiety crisis. A study came out last fall basically saying that all adults under the age of 65 should be actually medically screened for anxiety. That's how big of a problem people see that it is. It is stated that one in five adults will have a mental health crisis in their life sometime in their, in their life, an anxiety disorder sometime in their life. Why? We are spending a ton of money and a ton of writing on how to treat it. But why is it happening? Is this new? Uh, because I think if we don't understand why, our solutions could be perhaps misguided. Daniel Carr, a UCLA prof, she was on NPR here recently, and she was warning against actually medicalization, where she said we're basically saying that we're going to medicalize this problem because uh, we are going to say this is a medical issue, so then we're going, to pre- we're going to prescribe medicine, and we're going to prescribe, we need double the mental health counselors, but she goes, we're not asking the question, why? Is that really the solution? I want to encourage you to think about this, because we are chucking um, a lot at this. But a society that is led by the political class, and that is, tends to be bought by corporations, are going to look at big societal issues and they're going to look for easy fixes and institutional approaches and they will spend big money, usually in the wrong places, to help solve this problem because they want to be known as the person who solved it. You can't solve this in four years of an elected office. And by the way, you can't solve it with money. So beware of anybody in a suit selling you a solution that could actually create more of a problem. I, I'm not, by the way, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I want to acknowledge that anxiety disorders are real and there's a biological factor to those and those should be addressed in the proper way. But I'm talking about everything else because I'm pretty convinced that's not what most people are actually talking about. And we are not agreed on the cause. If you actually t- read the writers who are talking about the cause, they will acknowledge there's some biology involved. But then the current writers are talking about it's actually economic conditions that are causing it. Well, then you're not going to solve that with a pill, right? right? You probably are not going to solve that with a therapist. What do you have to do to change the economic conditions? Or their political, is political unrest? Anybody paying attention knows what that is. Or my uh, therapist that I met with last week, I asked him the question. I said, you're in your 70s. You've been doing this your whole life. You got a master's from DU. 
what do you think? And he said, it is the death of American community. That's what's causing it. Well, if that's the case, then we better not medicalize this whole thing, right? We at least know it's more nuanced than that. One, uh, Danielle Carr said, she goes, if someone's driving through a crowd running people over, the smart move is not to declare an epidemic of people suffering from got run over by a car syndrome and go searching for an underlying biological mechanism that must be causing it. We do have to treat the suffering, but sooner or later, we got to stop the guy running over the people with the car. How do you stop the economic car? How do you stop the deterioration of American community car? Uh, it is Faith Kinsinger, who's a member of our congregation, who just has started her own organization to address really community mental health, community health and health equity, especially in underserved neighborhoods. And she's the one who introduced me to this idea of the social determinants of health, that it's more than biology, it's your environment. The social determinants of health are economic stability, educational access and quality, healthcare access and quality, the neighborhood and the built environment, and the social and community context. So one in four adults are now saying their personal relationships and their work is what's causing them anxiety, right? These are the major sources of stress. So if we don't look at health in a more holistic way, we're going to get ourselves in serious trouble. So the facts are in. We are living lives without much peace. And we actually are Christians. We actually believe in a book that talks about peace a lot, even at macro levels. It's not placebo pills of little coffee cup verses. It's really, I mean, the Bible calls the gospel the gospel of peace. It's functional work in our lives is it actually settles us down, right, where we can live a peaceful life. So this brings us to Philippians chapter 4, and you guys have heard this a number of times, but it says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is hard, right? Do not be anxious about anything. And then it gives a prescription. And it says, the peace of God then, which you can't really comprehend, will actually keep your heart and your mind. So first of all, we have to decide, what is peace? What is it actually? Let me say, first of all, it is not the absence of difficulty. It's not like, well, how many of you says, well, when things settle down, then I'll be a good human. I'm going through a phase right now with my kids, and when they're out of this phase, let me tell you this, they're never out of the phase, right? <laughs> it's the terrible twos or the terrible 22s. I've lived them, right? So it's never going to settle down. Just stop lying to yourself. Just by the fact that you birthed a child means you're enlisting for a life of anxiety, Period. And a story that's just true. And a life of love, by the way. It is not the absence of difficulty. It is not de-risking our lives. And by the way, this is really huge in the American Christian literature. They will tell you to chill out. But this is usually coming from somebody who's in a position of privilege, who is able to live on a farm, and able to contemplate the rivers, hours and hours a day, and tell you that you should probably do the same. But this is not a missional life. If you commit yourself to the will of God, you cannot de-risk your life. In fact, right now in the Christian entrepreneurship community, this is the question. Are we risking it all because we have huge societal and ecclesial issues that we have to deal with? So what does peace actually mean? I'm going to tell you, actually tell you through a story. 
nine months ago, my junior-aged son said to me, Dad, I, we need to connect more, so we get in, he loves cars. I don't like cars, but he likes them, so we got together. We flew up to a thing in Seattle, watched a car race. Bottom line, he said, I think more kids should have access to cars because I hate school, but I love cars, and so I want more kids to get involved in cars and get out of their basements, and so we started this little organization that he calls the Cubs Racing Society. Isaiah volunteered with us yesterday at Bandemir. Several of you did. Thank you. Um, and, uh, well, it turns out through our association with the Bandemirs, they introduced us to the National Hot Rod Association, talked to the National Hot Rod Association. They asked us to come to California for an event in March. So we made a beautiful tent. Uh, we got our team together, and they said, yeah, we're going to serve about 2,000 high schoolers on a Friday. Would you come out, and would you engage them in cars, all things cars? So we made a little Hot Wheels tracks, and we had PlayStation, and we had Xbox, Forza, and we had remote control cars. So when those kids came through, man, we were cars, cars, cars. And there were about eight other organizations on the paddocks, like Pennzoil and whatever, and you know, they were giving them a sticker, or the Air Force was giving them a pen. No, we were going to give them a good time. That's what we were going to do. They're in the Cubs Racing Society. So we are out there. We're out there in California. I'm on my sabbatical, by the way. supposed to be resting. And uh, they said, okay, the kids are going to come. My son comes to me the minute before the gates open. Now, when the gates open, they let 400 teenagers through at a time, like, like a cattle stampede, right? And then they close the gates, and 30 minutes later, they let another 400 in, Right? And a minute before the gate opens, my son says, Dad, none of our cars are working. <laughs> if you've worked for me, you already know. You're laughing because you already know what that does to this guy, right? Uh, and that, that's the stampede, by the way. And we get overwhelmed. And by, by the way, I am an amazing leader in that moment in making sure that we figure out a way to keep everybody happy. I can do that in my sleep. But nobody likes me in that moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> nobody likes this guy. I, I, uh, I do not have a seated soul. That's the definition of peace, a seated soul. That's what peace actually is. Your peace is worth nothing sitting by a river, folks. That's easy. Can you have a seated soul when the chaos hits? That's actually how you know you are a differentiated leader and you have a seated soul. But most of us, we have an anxious relationship in our lives with this, um, this issue. And you really, I think of it in three ways. One is your relationship to God. One is your relationship to yourself. And one is a relationship to other people. So if you've got a phone or you've got a piece of paper there, you've got a pen, I want you to actually grade yourself on your seated soul scorecard right now. When I talk about your relationship with God, how full of anxiety is that? Do you have a seated soul, right? And that doesn't say everything's right. That doesn't mean you have all your questions answered, but your soul, you are seated. What's your letter grade? Then in your relationship with yourself, do you have a seated soul? Or is there a lot of anxiety and unrest? This does not mean that your life is perfect and that you're kids are all well-behaved and your economics are all together, but by and large, an A would say, I have a seated soul in my relationship with myself and my identity and who I am. And then my relationship with others. That doesn't mean all your relationships are good. That actually means that in the middle of all the chaos of human relationships, 
You have a seated soul. All right, take 60 seconds to give yourself a letter grade on all three of those. You should not be looking at me right now. <clears throat> Write it down. How many more time? Got that quiz again. How many of you say, my worst grade is my relationship with God? Raise your hand. Okay. How many is it with themselves? It's your worst grade. How many is my relationship with other people? Okay. Good mix. Most of you are in category two and three. So we have work to do, right? This is our self-assessment. And we're sitting here, by the way, on Father's Day. So I want to interweave the, the father's story here as well, because I think when it comes to my soul as a father, I have four great sons, but I have these thoughts. I'm not being the right spiritual influence on my kids. I could be better. My kid's bad behavior is my fault. If my kid is outside of my, my purview, he's probably doing something wrong. If he's 15 minutes late, he's probably drunk. You never had that thought? Wait till your kids get older. Never use Spurgeon. It was the other guys, all right? <laughs> how do I pass on my beliefs to my kids when I'm still trying to figure out how to live in this world? Man, when I look at other dads, they're just better, and I think, I think my wife actually knows that. Am I just parenting my kid out of fear of what other people might think of me? Will my kids like me when they're adults? Because they don't right now. I'm just never enough. I'm pretty sure this kid is not going to make it as an adult. <laughs> or just school, guys. I am so tired of parenting school-age kids. I am burnt out. I, I totaled up. I have parented a cumulative 58 years of educational work, and I think I still have nine left. I hope none of them get master's degrees. I really do. <laughs> I've known over 300 teachers in this neighborhood. They know all of our sins, right? I am over the educational thing. My, my, my second son, who all of us would agree is the most intellectually brilliant of anybody in our family, extended family, and for probably the next 100 years in our family, was going to drop out of school as a junior in high school. And so I finally brought him in. I brought the principal, the assistant principal, the advisor, the teachers, got them all in a room. And they were like, you know, Champ had watched every single video on how the American education system sucks. And he's like... Yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think the system is, is producing what you guys think it's producing. And I had this big discussion. I'm just like, please, we got to just get you a diploma. Otherwise, people are going to think I'm a horrible parent, you know? <laughs> and so finally, the vice principal goes, Champ, sometimes you got to play by the rules so later you can break the rules. You got to play the game so you can change the game. And I was like, yes! <laughs> And I look at my son, and he goes, what if I don't want to play your game? And I was like, I don't know whether to slap you, which I don't do, but I was like, I don't know what to do, but I actually agreed with him. Like, American education is in a significant rut, you know? But I just, it all just, like, compounds, and all of a sudden this anxiety comes popping out to my kids. Because if you don't fix these problems, you'll end up hurting your kids. You'll hurt the people around you. 
This is, by the way, unresolved anxiety is why people leave jobs, marriages. It's why they kind of screw up their kids because they actually have never really dealt with their own internal anxiety. So what's the solution? What we're talking about in this series here is if you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and if he's actually doing the supernatural transforming work, when people come in contact with you, the fruit ought to be joy, peace, one who suffers long, one who is kind, one who is good. This is what it's saying, right? The spirit-controlled, spirit-filled life exhibits fruit like this. This means, and by the way, this is supernatural. Because I would say, unlike maybe other pieces of fruit on the Holy Spirit tree, this one you deal with every single day. I mean, none of us live anxiety-free lives. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Set your minds on things of the Spirit. This is a mental exercise. So the moment you actually start to say, I'm going to deal with this issue in my life, you, you as a Christian have a different framework. And I have actually put it into... Uh, three steps here. Wake, take, and watch. A way to remember this is you all know what WTF is, right? This is not WTF. This is what the wah, right? What, what the wah? WTW. Turn to your neighbor and say, what the wah? Say it again. When you have anxiety today, I want you to say to yourself, what the wah? And I want you to think of these three steps, okay? This is a little tool. My wife's an elementary teacher. You can thank her, all right? The first one is wake up to yourself. When anxiety hits you, you have to wake up to yourself. And I've been doing work on this for about two and a half years. Steve Cuss, who wrote the book Managing Leadership Anxiety, says the, the first step is you have to actually acknowledge it's there. And believe me, it probably took six months for me to actually get to the point where I felt like 70% of the times I could actually acknowledge I've got anxiety building up in me. And you identify the roots of the anxiety and you name it. Cuss would say in his work, uh, chronic anxiety is generated by assumptions, expectations, false beliefs, and false needs. Okay? Um, I will represent it by this, uh, this beach ball here, right? So when I was there in uh, California on the racing paddock and the cars weren't ready, what happened in me? I immediately started feeling anxiety bubbling up in me, okay? And it's there. But for a long time in my life, I didn't really know it was there. And then you know what I'm a master at? Transmitting that anxiety, because anxiety is contagious, right? Because, and Katie probably is the number one queen of this. She has handled my anxiety for 15 years, right? Because when I'm anxious, I'm awesome at transmitting it, okay? <laughs> Yes, thank you for catching my anxiety. Lauren catches my anxiety. No. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Someone's got to handle my anxiety. No, no, no. Right back there. Oh. Someone please pick up my anxiety. Please pick it up. Don't leave it there. Kevin, pick it up. Thank you so much. Oh, yes, Keith. <laughs> you handed it to somebody else. It is contagious. Dads, your anxiety is contagious. Your kids can tell when you're worked up immediately, right? 
This is chronic anxiety. Wake up to yourself. Do you know what's happening in you? Uh, Cuss would also say the, the broad sources are this, control, perfection, having the answer, being there for people, and approval. All of you, one of these is major for you. For me, it's being there for people. I get a call on Tuesday. The local boys football team uh, doesn't have money for uniforms. Jason, can you solve it? I'm like, yes, I'm going to solve that problem, right? Uh, I get a call from a donor, one of our top 20 donors, says, I feel disconnected from your mission. Oh, i, I got to be there for you, right? I get a text message on Thursday from a, an alum of Cross Purpose who's homeless and is living in a car, and she says, I can't do it anymore. Can you help me? In our alumni department, the person over there is on health leave, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, I can help. I'll see you at 4. I'll be back there. And then she shows up here at 1, and I'm not there because I'm in another meeting, you know? And then, you know, I have a pretty long week. I mean, Thursday night, I'm up till about midnight working on an issue. And then, you know, Friday night, I hit the hay about 10 o'clock, and my phone blows up and says, I'm in crisis. I need you now. Like, can, can you come to me now? Man, my number four right there, like, I just, I just immediately grab it, right? And I want to be there for people. Um, and the first part is acknowledging it in my life. This happened a year ago. My, uh, I get a call from the school. Actually, I got a call from Josh Larson. <laughs> I got a text from Josh Larson. Um, our school's on lockdown. Our boys caused it. The cops are there. <laughs> and I'm like, huh. So it uh, turns out his son had the brilliant idea that on the last day of school, perhaps when Spurgeon came back from lunch, he shouldn't go through the front door. He should go through the side window. And, the, you know, you know, end-of-year pranks have really gone downhill. If they think that's a great idea, it's like, they're like, that's funny, let's do it. So Braden pulls up the window. Spurgeon, take, dressed in all black, takes his black backpack, throws it through the window of the school, climbs up through the window. On the busiest street in the neighborhood, and the amount of Karens we have has multiplied by 10x in this neighborhood, Okay. And, sh and it's the week after the Uvalde shooting. Yeah. So we get the call. And I hear they avoided the staff that tried to find them in the school, too. So I'm like, this is not great. What makes it even worse is I get the text on our anniversary trip. As we checked into the hotel room, I mean, this is kind of a bougie hotel. I've been planning this for months. And... We're checking in the afternoon, and we're going to take a nap, right? And, I mean, everything's lined up beautifully perfect, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's not just me that's taking a nap. It's her that's taking a nap, right? So it's like that's gotta, everything's got to be right there, too. Well, as you know, when you get a text that your son is being detained by SWAT, it disrupts any plans you have for a nap. Like, I'm not getting any sleep at all, right, in that afternoon. And it's like, I have to I, I identify it, and believe me, I'm mad. I am mad. But if I don't wake up to myself and say, 
I have got to do something different. The what, the what, the, the T there is take a walk with God. I have got to take a walk with God. When I got back from sabbatical, one of the things I'm trying to practice is this, is practicing the presence of God. And I have this candle in my office, and when I walk into work, I light the candle. Because for me, it's a symbol of the Spirit of God that is, needs to be present in my leadership because how I handle this, like, he's got to speak into that. I keep that thing lit all day long. Because I have got to practice the presence of God, not in my morning devotions or my evening prayers, but in the fray of life, okay? So what do you do there? Now, secularism has a bunch of techniques there. And I think the church is pretty bankrupt of them, okay? But I'll tell you what one is I, I get all the time. In fact, when Juan and I travel... You go to these leadership things. I'll never forget we're in D.C. one time, and they, you know, they have you sit down at a table, put your hands on your thighs, breathe in, and they tell you to feel your breath. You, get the, you know those people? Like, my personality does not jive. That's not my love language of, like, chilling out. Because why don't I just start mocking it in that moment, right? I remember they said, take this deck of cards and find out what card speaks to you, and then think about what's on that card, that picture, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That can be helpful, but that's actually trying to numb me out and get me to think of something different and to go to my little peaceful place. But that's not going to work because techniques without truth can be a placebo to anxiety. So it says here in Philippians, you need to talk to God, and that's called prayer. Now, if you are thinking of prayer like I think of prayer, I want to actually change your perception of prayer. Because I think most of us think of prayer as the guy on the left. And that's what i got to do. And I think prayer has so many different applications that it actually can rarely look like what's on the left. Because this guy's not really good at what's on the left. That is, that is not my preferred prayer posture. Right? I'm not a prayer journal guy. Right? I, I'm not a stay still guy in my walk with God. For me, it's much more like pick up the phone and call God in that moment. Because it says there, you then pray and you petition. Somebody said to me, the reason that's so important for you to ask God for something is because asking is the core of intimacy. You don't ask for something from somebody if you're not intimate with them. And by the way, in that moment, you are not asking God to solve the crisis. You actually can't solve it if you have anxiety about it. You are actually asking for supernatural help to, in that moment, become a seated soul. That's what you're trying to do. You need the Spirit to calm you down, to make you centered and differentiated in that moment, and let your request be made known to God. God help me. Now, some of us will get bigger in that moment. Some will get smaller. It's both the same problem, right? We are sitting there allowing the anxiety to rule our day. And then it says, and then do it with thanksgiving. And by the way, this is not what you heard in church, that in that moment you say, and thank you, God, I already trust you. I know you're going to deliver me, and I'm going to speak it into existence. You ever hear that? You have never spoken anything into existence in your life. Only one person ever has, and that is God. Do not claim some victory that may not come. I have no bearing over whether my son's going to jail or not in that moment. It's out of my control, right? 
You have no bearing over whether that person is going to get better or not. You can pray. In that moment, though, it is not all about claiming the potential future victory. It is simply saying, God, help me in this moment be a centered soul. And in that, you are depositing positive thoughts into your head. And this is what's happening. You are robbing it of its power. You, in that moment, are... I mean, this is, this is the technique that works because that's actually centered on real truth. I mean, I'm in the leadership challenge of my life financially at my work. We are trying to open cross-purpose site number three. That takes uh, $2.2 million to do that. We've raised about half of that, and we're supposed to start swinging hammers next month. Right before I leave on sabbatical, the Aurora Project's going so well, they said, we're going to open that thing in about 14 months. We need to close on that property. So, uh, they said July 18th. Jason, you need to bring $3.5 million to the table. That's with an M, million, right? Like, I was like, <laughs> I love what our chief development officer said to me. She said, Jason, I knew we were expecting. I didn't think we were having twins, right? And here we're having twins, and we need, we need $3.5 million. We don't have. Believe me, folks, this just pumps up the beach ball. I cannot control it. I cannot. I have to work. I have to juggle. I have to check financing options. I have to see if they'll carry this part. I have to see what part we can do on site three. I got to do my job. But in the moment, fundamentally, I can't bring in an additional three and a half million dollars in 60 days to make that happen. It is not my problem. So I have to take that walk with God. I have to pick up the phone and say, God, what am I going to do? God, I need you right now. And he's like, just calm down. Like, just calm down. Uh, this did not take me by surprise. I am God. Are you a Christian leader? Then you better not be throwing beach balls out to your staff. <laughs> Some of you already gotten that beach ball, by the way. I apologize. Uh, this is how you take away its power. And then it says, watch God protect you. Watch God protect you. It says in Philippians, what does he do? It says, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the idea of a garrison of soldiers. Ooh, this gets me choked up. In your moment of your greatest anxiety, when you do the technique of truth in that moment, God's Spirit sends a garrison of soldiers to guard your heart. It is like surrounds you with protection in that moment because you are most vulnerable. This then becomes, you, you actually then see God's amazing grace, an undeserved favor, a supernatural power comes around you. This is the moment where you experience God. In Colossians 3, it says, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's the idea of a referee. A referee We'll sit there, the peace of God, when that false assumption comes in that says you're not enough of a dad, boom, it pokes that assumption. When that assumption that the expectation is you need to be the perfect father, the perfect mother, boom, the peace of God is saying, no, that's not what I require of you. Your false beliefs, your false needs of approval, in that moment, the peace of God comes and the referees are saying, that's not of me, right? And by the way, oftentimes you can't do that alone. You need a friend in Christ to help speak truth to you. So I want to take the last part of the message and talk to you as your pastor, because I think you could actually listen to this sermon from about a thousand different preachers and communicators and hear 
gospel instruction on how to deal with yourself. But what makes this passage actually different is that we're not ourselves here. We are a community, a covenant community together, a group of real people with a common belief on a common mission. So what I'm about to say is hyper important because it pertains to your life in this community. And what is needed in this church is a group of peacemakers. Not just where you know how to deflate the beach ball yourself, where you actually then take upon the responsibility of the broader community and say, I'm going to help everybody else live at peace. That to me is ninja Christianity. And if you're in any type of leadership, you know how hard this can be. And the Bible says, this is why it says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Because here's the two pictures of peacemakers, right? You have the Hunger Games peacekeepers on the left. We know what that's like. We've been in church with those people, right? Telling everybody else what to do and how everything should operate. But then look at, look at the real peacemakers of the world. The people who have actually walked into warring factions and brought people together. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must be a peace-making, peace-loving, peace-exhibiting community. It, it hit me into church planting that we are perhaps the hardest model of church you can possibly do in American culture. We want to bring together uh, not just multicultural, but multilingual. We have kind of a conservative theology with a very progressive uh, kind of justice-centric missiology. We don't want to be personality-driven, so there's a plurality of leadership and power and sharing. Uh, we are in a culturally confusing era, but what we are looking at now is, is looking at maybe one church with multiple expressions, but it matters where the power goes, the money goes, the paychecks come from. And in the middle of that, the future of this church is, can we be a culture of peacemakers bringing together a group of people that normally would never be together when the church, by the way, is moving to tribalistic models, humans are moving across the country to go to a political environment that they more agree with. And we're trying to actually do the exact opposite. Can we have diversity here and unity at the same time? This will never be a megachurch. It's way too hard. But I think this is actually the core of Christianity. And it's not that we, and, I, and, I, and believe me, we use a lot of professional care here. But I like a one one. Uh, Justin Baker said, a psychologist with Ohio State, he said, not everyone's a cardiologist, but a lot of people are trained in CPR. If we only rely on the mental health force, we're going to keep going around in circles and not get anywhere. This is, has to be all of our problems. Like, we need an army of CPR people on this peacekeeping mission that no matter where you go in this church, when you see discord and disunity, you come in and bring peace. How do you do that? Dedicate yourself to being a peacemaking church member. Help people have seated souls and navigate relational conflict. Get your own relationships right. Your greatest growth in sanctification will usually be through relational conflict and repair. My, my counselor says to me, he says, Jason, there is in every conflict my story, then there's our story, then there's the story. And it's really hard to get people out of my story and our story to see the the story that God's actually doing something far bigger. And the Bible does say this in Romans 12, and do this as much as it is possible within you. There are some people, honestly, you cannot do this with. And the Bible says just do as much as you possibly can so that if it ever finally fails, you've done everything you know to do. But then we need people not just be a peacemaking church member, we need people to make this their ministry. 
it's actually way easier to build a $61 million complex in Aurora to house the poor and cross-purpose and a church than it is to get 100 adults to get along on the same mission. So become excellent at it. We have like a half a dozen tools we use here from crucial conversations, the communication model, nonviolent communication, radical candor, managing leadership anxiety, emotionally healthy leader. We train in this stuff. We need more people to train in this stuff. And then I say, but if you're going to do it, prepare for a bloody cross. Because it is hard work. Corinthians says it so much that these believers were suing each other. And it said in Corinthians, it's amazing, it said, you know what, some of you ought to just realize that you could probably sue and win, but you know what, why don't you just decide to be defrauded? Why don't you just eat the loss? That's kingdom peacemaking. So we are trying to form a better way of living, a family within a society that is valueless. We surrender our need for a pound of flesh and we form a common life with a common purpose. So, let us be a peace-loving, peace-living, and a peacemaking community. Because when we look at the sources of chronic anxiety, if you'd advance the next slide, it's not working. Steve Cuss would say in his book, these things only belong to one being in the universe, and that is God. And you are not God. You do not have perfect control, but he does. You are not perfect. You do not have all the answers. You can't be there for everybody. And you will never win everyone's approval. You will let people down. So these, we must stop trying to be God and realizing that Christ is actually our peace, the Bible says. He has put to death hostility. In fact, Christ himself... He was God, but you know with control, you know what he did? He gave it up. I'm going to get nailed to a cross. How do you get lose more control than letting someone kill you? In the perfection, he could have demanded perfection, but instead he said, I'm going to take upon myself the sins of the world. Instead of always having the answer with his critics, he did not answer a word. Instead of being there for people, you couldn't be part of the world in that first century and look at him on a cross and say that he was there for people. Everyone would say, this guy actually let us all down, and he suffered that reproach. In approval of others? He's naked. This is our Jesus. And he says, in the covenant community of the church, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, he is our peace. His goal was peace to make one new humanity, to put the death to hostility, and he preached peace to those who were near, and he preached uh, peace to those who were far, and he says, we are now the dwelling place of God, seated at his table. And Ephesians 2 ends with, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Because of him, and in that model, we can actually have peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the first seated soul in the universe. And thank you for giving us the promise that we can do that too. But God, we admit we cannot do that by ourselves. We need your supernatural grace for our own lives, for the lives of this community. Lord, we just ask for the privilege as we journey here over the next decade or two as a covenant community 
that we could actually see something radically countercultural, loving and being peacemakers across lines where culture can't figure out how to do it. But we're going to need your help. We ask this in your name. Amen.